CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. You all know what that music means. It's Political Rewind, Wednesday afternoon, if you're listening in real time. What a great panel we have in the studio for today's show. You, by the way, can see them if you go to the GPB news page on Facebook and watch the show there. Uh, If you can't do it now, tonight, go home. You can still see it on Facebook and, and... Get a look at all these wonderful people gathered for today's Political Rewind. They include Greg Bluestein, political reporter for the AJC. Good to have you with us, uh, Greg. It's Wednesday, the day we uh, usually are lucky enough to have you come in and be with us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. Got a chance, I told you. Your mom ran into my <laughs> wife and me at Crog Street Market over the weekend. She she thinks you're pretty cool. <laughs> she is a faithful wow. listener of your show. So she, she, she always texts me after it. So. <laughs> right. Well, if you're listening today, Ms. Bluestein. Welcome. Uh, Andre Gillespie, Dr. Andre Gillespie is here too. She, of course, is political science professor at Emory University and has a brand new book out, relatively new still, about uh, President Obama. It's called Rice in the Obama Administration. And it's available on Amazon. It is. Okay. Uh, sitting next to you, Kerwin Swint. Uh, Kerwin Swint is... Um, has been a political science professor, but you're in loftier positions than that these days, right? I jump around. I'm director of the School of Government and International Affairs yeah. at Kennesaw State. And I should introduce you as I did uh, uh, Gillespie, Dr. Gillespie, Dr. Swint, right? You're... Oh, please. Okay. All right. Well, we go by first name. Lieutenant here. Colonel, uh, actually. <laughs> uh, Dr. Uh, Cesar Mitchell. Uh, is with us here today, today as well. Caesar, uh, former president of the Atlanta City Council, a candidate for mayor, and who knows, maybe a candidate for some higher Democratic office down or Democratic nomination down the road. Hi, Caesar. Hi, Bill. I know we're not going to talk about it. Today, uh, right? We're not. All right. <laughs> I'll tell you what. Absolutely uh, not. No, and, and I'm teasing people. I said to you before the show went on the air that we've been talking to a lot of our higher profile political people about whether or not they're going to jump into this open Senate seat, the Johnny Isaacson Senate seat. I asked you at what point in the show I could talk to you about that. You said at no point. At no point. <laughs> all right. Well, at we'll all. just have to be Whistle. like everyone else and wait and see what happens. <laughs> Greg Bluestein, speaking of the Senate, let's talk a little bit about Kelly Leffler. Um, if, if, from this perspective, you today, the Wall Street Journal yesterday, you both reported on the intricate financial empire that she and her husband, Jeff Sprecher, have built together. She, among other things, is um, I think she's a co-part owner, in, isn't she, in his uh, international financial businesses? Yeah, and this is a giant financial trading platform. Um, called Intercontinental Exchange, which owns the New York Stock Exchange. It owns a uh, BACT, which is the company she's chief executive of. And her appointment, her you know, she has to take office in less than a month. And so there's a tangle of regulatory issues and questions she'll face ethically about not only um, kind of separating herself from her, how she'll separate herself from her finances, but what, what constitutes a conflict of interest, um, what votes she'll recuse herself from, um, how she'll handle her finances, will it be in a blind trust, what she'll disclose, what she won't, all these issues um, that, that you know normally come up with typical candidates but explode because of who she is and how much and, and the wealth she, she is. She uh, is uh, the CEO of a digital currency uh, trading pla- and storage platform that went through some real problems in the last year getting regulatory approval before it finally did. Um, she's, of course, a, a part owner of the Atlanta Dream. Um, and, and so, I, I mean, it's clear we're going to have we're going to see all of this play out uh, in, in how she handles this. And there's no reason to think she can't handle it quite well, I think, I imagine. But it what adds to this, Andra, is the fact that this sort of thing is coming to the surface through Bluestein's reporting, Wall Street Journal and others. At a time when she has decided she needs to keep a very low profile, maybe for good reason. She's got a lot to get put together 
taking over the Senate seat in January, but then putting a campaign team together. But politics really exploits a vacuum. And the less we learn from her about herself, the more opportunity Democrats are going to have to define her uh, before she does. And not just Democrats, potentially Doug Collins, since we don't know what he's going to do. Right. Um, and so, you know, they're just create this creates all of these opportunities. And, and these are not insurmountable. But part of the problem is, and, and I think we've learned this a lot in the last three years, there are norms and then there are rules. And so there is a vacuum of rules here that's kind of making this a lot more ambiguous than perhaps it needs to be. And she's not the only person who has been affected by this. In the last few years, we have seen a Republican member of Congress, uh, you know, uh, be charged uh, based basically with insider trading based on sort of what he gathered in committee and then, you know, making recommendations to his family about what kinds of stocks to buy. This is an issue that's affecting the presidential race as well. Mike Bloomberg is in charge of a media company who he's not allowing to cover his campaign. And so sooner or later, there is this important ethical question that we have to ask. Um, You know, I think women get taught this very early, and I'm seeing that other people don't necessarily sort of encounter this or richer people don't encounter this. You can have it all, but you can't have it all at the same time. And so what does this look like when you sort of shift between different types of positions? Um, Do you divest in order to sort of remove any potential sort of uh, optical problem? Um, Does this allow you to then use the experience that you have actually in the service of good without there being the appearance that you might be using this to your own benefit? Kerwin, weigh in on this. Well, like other millionaires, she's going to have to be very precise in filling out all the financial disclosure forms uh, that U.S. Congress mandates. She's going to have to work carefully with her staff attorneys, the U.S. Senate attorneys, and coming up with how are they going to navigate some of those questions. I mean, is there a, a point where you need to recuse yourself or make another disclosure? Um, but politically, you know, we, we talked about before the show, she really needs to define herself in political terms. I mean, right now, all most Georgians know about her is that she's very rich. Um, and so she needs to come out and, and really be a forceful voice for, for why Georgians need to trust her as a conservative and as a U.S. senator. Yeah, I mean, Caesar, I, when she was introduced by the governor last week, of course, and Greg was there, and he can talk about this a little more. But, but first, for you, she did basically have a laundry list of very conservative positions. I support the wall. I, I'm against the impeachment. I'm opposed to abortion. She went through her laundry list of conservative conservative items, but that doesn't tell us who she is, and there is still this opportunity. I'm a little surprised. I have not seen, and I think I'm on most of the mailing lists, Georgia Democrats already begin uh, kind of trying to define her. Bluestein says I'm wrong. But bef- all right, but y- y- give us your take well, on no, this, Caesar. Well, first of all, let me you know just echo something that Andre <clears throat> said. She, Andre said that you know we have a vacuum of rules. So I think the first thing that she needs to do possibly is to, re- to respond uh, to these questions and really kind of these hoops she'll have to jump through with respect to her wealth and what does that say for her ability to vote on things, to disclose and recuse. Uh, at the end of the day, I think she's got to be as transparent uh, as she can be. I mean, as transparent as the public might expect. I think that's the first thing she needs to do. Now, when she does that, obviously, that's going to create certain uh, avenues for criticism. But that's just the nature of the beast, so to speak. Uh, with respect to the issues that I think she's laid out that she agrees with or disagrees with, I think uh, I find that to be very interesting because some of that I think just opens up so many avenues for her to be criticized by Democrats and, I, and, and, and they will take full advantage of doing that. I, I'm sure that will happen. However, uh, my gut tells me that she's getting ready to be the sitting senator. Uh, and she's going to have to take some votes. Uh, she's going to get in front of that mic at the lectern down in, at the Capitol or at the Capitol in D.C. And she's going to talk and she's going to make decisions and she's going to cast her ballot on certain measures that are controversial and right before the Senate now. And I think that's what's going to define her over the next six to nine months. Greg, maybe I'm on the wrong list, but I have not seen a lot of uh, state power. I've seen some, but I haven't seen as much as I expected. Yeah, on Twitter and and, and on uh-huh. an email list, um, the state party has been bashing her as out of touch, uh, mocking the uh, the rollout as uneven and, and full of conflict between conservatives. And that's because there was this kind of vacuum for a while that we, that we mentioned. And look, I mean, the $20 million... The floor, right? It could end up being more than twenty million dollars, but the twenty million dollars that that Leffler's campaign has promised to spend uh, to seed the campaign 
is an asset. It's it's a huge amount of money for a, a, a race that will likely shatter campaign records, but also, as we mentioned, um, can be used uh, by her opponents, Republicans and Democrats, to put painters out of touch, as unable to connect with typical voters. Um, and that's why this debut has been so heavy on the behind-the-scenes stuff, on meeting these conservative activists. She gave out her cell phone number over the weekend. She called dozens of, of Republican officials, grassroots and elected officials saying, hey, I want your input, which is really interesting because your typical senator or candidate would never have to do that. They already know the, they had spent a year or two years, more than a decade campaigning out on the trail. She's, she's being told to do that by, yeah. by people that, that think that's important for her at this point to do that. I said, you better get on that. Because they don't know her. Yeah. You know, your yeah. typical And, and she's going to need their support. Yeah. I mean, she's it, campaigning. And, yeah, and that strikes campaign. me as sound advice to, to, to give mm-hmm. to somebody who's a relative newcomer. Mm-hmm. But then again, I, I want to go sort of go back to the gender thing because I don't want to not acknowledge that Kelly Leffler is a woman and part of the reason why she was chosen was to enhance the descriptive representation of women, um, you know, in the Senate, particularly Republican women. Um, so because she is an unknown quantity, she's had to start this career off by basically sort of saying, I'm going to fall in line with sort of what the orthodoxy is right now in the party. Um, and, and that's probably important for her, and especially on the first big thing that she's really going to have to vote for, which is impeachment. I expect her to kind of fall in line on that. On the other hand, though, she was also chosen with this eye towards recruiting um, and also reclaiming uh, women, suburban women, who are drifting away from the party. And that's a tall order to begin with for reasons that I explained last week. But in order to be that type of person, she's also going to have to demonstrate independence. And I think that that's really tough when you're a novice politician because she does need a lot of handholding. And it's not like she's coming to this having you know been an experienced activist or having been especially active in the party as some of the other women who you know did put their uh, hat in the, in the race were. Uh, Kerwin, uh, Sam Burmistaz, our producer, just sent me a news release uh, from the Georgia Democrats that they sent out yesterday. I, I somehow missed it, but the lead of it says Governor Brian Kemp's rollout of his hand-picked mega-donor with a link on the word mega-donor appointee certainly did not go as planned with mounting conservative criticism and Leffler's reveal that she won her appointment by, quote, pledging to buy her seat, which you'd expect would buy her a digital team that wouldn't confuse her account with another. Po- she goes, the, the confusing her account with another politicians was a very silly uh, error in which somebody on her behalf posted to Twitter yeah. the wrong account. Yeah, the wrong. Silly, you know, yeah not a, that was silly. Killer, but but just, here we're hearing where the Democrats are yeah. going to come after well, her. Well, two things there. The fact that she could put 20, I even heard $30 million of her own money in the race takes huge pressure off of the Trump campaign, off of the Kemp campaign, the, the Purdue campaign to raise money from the same donors. So that was a huge advantage that may have given her a leg up over some of the other candidates that Brian Kemp was considering. But also, it's going to be really interesting to see what Doug Collins does, to see what other Republicans get in the race, because you know there are going to be some. You just don't know, or I don't know at this point, the caliber, the quality of those candidates. But if Republicans can unify early next year, that would be huge. I mean, that would allow them an opportunity to get some breathing space and, and get some get some strategy going. Yeah. Greg, what are you hearing about uh, Doug Collins? Well, he's 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 pretty busy right now with impeachment. <laughs> yes. the top Republican sure. House Judiciary Committee, but um, he has not ruled out a run. Um, he is he is stuck with this statement that he said I don't know about a month ago, um, the day of the Democratic debate. So I'll never forget that day, uh, November twentieth, um, when he said uh, that he's strongly considering a run. Um, he uh, feels like he should have been the guy. And last night on Sean Hannity on Fox News, uh, Sean Hannity introduced him as Senator Collins. <laughs> so there's still a deep well of support. What I'm interested too, though, is what Professor Gillespie said about. The independence um, in, in any areas where she shows she distances herself from Republican orthodoxy here. And what one thing we haven't heard from her yet is on her stance on religious liberty. Because remember, as the co-owner of the WNBA, the dream team, um, the dream, yeah. the dream, um, her and other executives with sports uh, teams all over the, the city came out in unison against the religious liberty legislation. Uh, the team came out against it. She came out against it as a business owner. She, there's two ways she could go about this. She could say, yes, that was a business decision, but personally, I, I support religious liberty. Or she could say, yeah, that was how I feel and, 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 and kind of d- depart from Republican, this Republican stance on that. So that's one issue I'm really interested to hear from her on. 
I mean, or it could be something where she has some expertise. So like on mm-hmm. agriculture, like I was very sort of sympathetic, like, you know, when I heard what kind of farm she grew up on, which I'm, I'm assuming was bigger than the one that my mother grew up on, um, but did the same stuff. And, you know, if there are trade policies that actually make it harder for farmers to be able to sell their commodities, right? That's something where it doesn't matter what Republican orthodoxy is. You know better. You grew up with this. And some of these people making decisions um, have no idea what it's like to actually, you know, have to, you know, plant and harvest crops. So she should be able to sort of speak out on this. And that would actually probably do her like tremendous favors, you know, yeah. in, in the southern part of the state. Yeah. I, I, were you going to ask me a question? Go ahead. And well, say- I, you know, just piggybacking on what 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 Andra said has I mean, you know, she's got, she's got 20 million dollars committed. She probably could put a whole lot more in. And I just think she's got to make a broader decision. And that is whether or not she's going to be. Uh, a part of or kind of be a mouthpiece for the old Republican Party, the withering, what I consider the withering Republican Party, or the new Republican Party. Uh, And I think that's the decision she's got to make. She's got enough money to make that decision. But I think for her, if I were advising her, I would strongly suggest uh, that she move with an air of independence. Um, at, At what point do Democrats need to step up? Uh, and, and declare themselves for for this seat, Caesar. Is it okay to wait until after she's been sworn in, see how the impeachment trial begins, or 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 in in the same way that she is not defining herself at this stage, is a Democrat losing an opportunity to get in and begin begin defining begin defining her or himself as a strong candidate for in the race? I think she's. I think the fact that she has resources implies that, that a Democrat has to step up pretty quickly. Pretty quickly. Pretty quickly. And can't, I, you can't wait until after the impeachment hearings and try. You can't. That'll, that'll be too late. Yeah. I think the new year. I mean, we're we're in kind of political dead zone. Yeah, everyone's worried about the the, the fourth quarter financial reporting, and if a Democrat gets in next week or this week, um, which seems very unlikely, they would have two weeks to report. And the, you know, and, and if they have lackluster yeah. fundraising, you can already. But I, I'm 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 with you. I mean, you know, the party can give you some cover, and those press releases give you some cover. Um, but the you know, I, I've talked to many Democratic operatives who are worried about the party uniting behind behind one candidate um, because there's already Already, uh, you know, at least one other well-financed candidate in the in the race who doesn't have the you know party leadership backing, and there could be you could see a scenario where there's three or four um, who, who legitimate candidates who get in. As much as we've talked about party unity, who say I'll be the person and I'll force the other eyes to drop out. Um, Kerwin, uh, before we move on uh, to another subject, uh, you made the point that uh, twenty, thirty million dollars that she may be prepared to invest in the campaign. Uh, you, you talk about how it takes a burden off the national party from having to send her money. It also, though, does it not uh, scare off uh, somebody like a Doug Collins? You know, doesn't it give him reason to think whether he really ha- wants to get engaged in a fight with somebody who can write checks of that size? Well, maybe. I mean, it, it scares. It could scare off a lot of candidates, Republican and Democrat. But if if you're Doug Collins, I think you are pretty sure that if you commit to getting in this race, you can raise that kind you can of money. Raise money to be competitive. So you really do become the conservative candidate that Republicans uh, and donors who are also going around the country are willing to do what they can to match Kelly Leffler all oh, the yeah. way. I mean, if Collins gets in the race, he'll have a ton of support mm. uh, in Georgia and nationally. Um, and he won't necessarily have to outrace her, but he'll, he'll be able to raise enough to be in the, in the money. All right. Before we move on, I'm going to take a break. In a second, but one other quick thing, Andra. Uh, you know, in the same way that on the national uh, level, impeachment has sucked all the oxygen out of every other political conversation, it is interesting that as we watched the Kemp uh, application process unfold as we moved on to his selecting Leffler. We've completely stopped talking about Senate race number one. We're hearing, I mean, David Perdue continues to make news because he's in Washington uh, uh, talking about a variety of issues that are worthy of coverage. Democratic candidates in that race haven't been getting any attention, and that's not good for them. It's probably not good for them, and I think what the proof that'll be in the pudding is what their fourth quarter financials look like. So in particular, um, you know, Teresa Tomlinson didn't always raise as much money as people expected in certain quarters, so it's a question of does she show um, signs of strength, signs of momentum, and then what does that mean actually relative to the other candidates? That's exactly right. I mean, I've talked to them 
of course, they want more attention, but they're also in such deep fundraising mode because next year is going to be such a slog that they're spending a lot of their time making calls. They're going to events. It's not like they're not out there campaigning, but they're spending so much time trying to get put up a good number for the end of the quarter that um, they kind of get it. Okay, um, let's get to a break. Uh, one other comment, Greg. We both have a certain self-interest in seeing Leffler get out there and start talking to journalists uh, to tell us where she stands. We've invited uh, her already to be on this show, uh, and I know you've been looking to get an interviewer, uh, an interview with her as well. So, come on, uh, Senate uh, Senator Designate Leffler, let's do something. I, I think it'll happen <laughs> soon because look, she uh, come January when she's sworn in, every trip to the chamber. She'll be surrounded by a bunch of national reporters who don't really care about Georgia interests, who will be asking her all sorts of national questions. Yeah. So she needs to frame herself now for Georgia voters. And talking to the Georgia Press Corps is one way to do it. Yeah. All right. Let's do this. Let's get a break out of the way. And when we come back, we'll have a lot more to talk about on Political Rewind. I'm Elsa Chang. The year is almost up. And perhaps you made some promises back in January that you haven't quite kept. Maybe you told yourself you'd unplug now and then or exercise more. Or maybe you promised to be more supportive of local nonprofits. Now, you can't make good on all of those promises, but donating to this public radio station, that is doable. Call 800-222-4788 or donate at gpb.org. When Atlanta hosted the 1996 Olympics, a terrorist struck. There was an explosive device that does not... In the rush for justice, the wrong man was presumed guilty. You know my name, but you do not really know who I am. Mistaken. The real story of Richard Jewell follows his descent from hero to villain in the court of public opinion. Join us for this special broadcast from On Second Thought, Friday morning at 9 on GPB, or stream it from the On Second Thought podcast feed. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Um, Greg Bluestein, uh, USDA is rolling out new rules about SNAP benefits, or food stamps as they've been called traditionally, which uh, will tighten up the work requirement that was passed by, uh, I can't remember, was it a legislative or was it a, an executive order that put that in place? It may, yeah. So it, it, the point is that... Um, there was a work requirement added to SNAP benefits or job training, something of that nature. And, and then states were given the freedom to apply for waivers for individuals with certain uh, conditions that would prevent them from working. Sonny Perdue, uh, uh, Ag Secretary in the administration, decided that that waiver was getting out of control. And so they're tightening up the waiver requirement, uh, the, the, the ability for states to issue waivers, and people are going to lose their benefits. It's estimated that some 55,000 Georgians won't get SNAP benefits, and nationally, more than a half a million, some almost 700,000 people. Here's what Sonny Perdue told CNBC about that. They would be allowed 120 days when they were down on their luck, when there weren't jobs to do for food stamps. What happened was this became into a waiver situation. Uh, the statute was 10% unemployment. When we saw uh, in the recession years, uh, America's compassionate. They allowed waivers for people to do that. Now we've got more jobs based on the Trump's economy than we've got people for apply for them. We're going back to the original congressional intent. That's what the administration is supposed to do. Look at the original congressional intent and go back there. So we are, uh, we're eliminating those waivers except for those people who are naturally exempt. This is a, this is a major battle um, that, that also divides Republicans because so many of the, of the recipients of SNAP um, live in rural areas, yeah. too, where, where, where food prices, as AJC colleague Maya Prabhu showed, tend to be even higher than in, than in cities, um, strangely enough. Um, and so this, this is one of those issues that we've seen a lot of conservatives, you know, maybe not aggressively criticize uh, Ag, Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue, but really kind of tap the brakes on. Um, you know, Caesar. one of the statements that Purdue made that really caught my eye was his comment that this is a way to encourage self-sufficiency among people on food stamps, implying, of course, that people who are on, wealth, who are on SNAP benefits just plain don't want to work. Well, first of all, SNAP benefits don't necessarily 
provide you enough food resources to live off of. Just my wife and I, several years ago, we did a snap challenge. You can't live off of that if you've got a full family of children. Uh, So I I think, you know, I think that just needs to be made clear. Number one. Number two, you know, you know, if you want to have a program uh, that allows for or at least requires people to be actively engaged in finding work and, and job training, I think that's fine. But I, my perspective on this, quite frankly, is that, you know, you either pay now or you pay later. And when you pay later, you're paying for multiple uh, situations and issues and problems, you know, whether it's health care, whether it's uh, other types of matters that impact our young people, whether it's the criminal justice system, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so I think dealing with this now, supporting this program now, coming up with smart regulations now without just dropping people off is smarter than dealing with this issue on the back end. So, Kerwin, 6%, the state must have 6% unemployment before the waivers can be allowed. Right now, Georgia has a 3% unemployment, and there are only a handful of states, Clay, Telfair, uh, Wheeler counties are the only counties that have above a 6% rate. So this is why so many Georgians may be affected by this. Right. And it often does become a rural versus urban split. I mean, I know there are people outside Metro Atlanta who this would affect much more quickly than a lot of the people who are talking about the issue. But, you know, it's 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 typical of, uh, you know, the philosophy of this administration that, you know, if it's not needed, if it's not crucial, then, you know, we won't spend the money. Andre, your take on this? Well, a couple of things. I mean, I, I think that this policy one seems to be pegged to this perception that since we are below full employment nationally, that anybody who's not working doesn't want to work um, or, you know, isn't actively looking for a job. And I think we might want to interrogate that a little bit more, um, you know, and think about what would be the possibility if you were going to proceed with this policy about uh, tying it to labor force participation rates. Also looking at structural issues for what if there are people who look for jobs but then can't find it because there are certain types of structural issues um, that might actually prevent them from being able to find employment. And then kind of getting back to Caesar's point, SNAP is supplemental. So it's basically to sort of provide a basic level of subsistence. And I think we really have to disabuse ourselves of the notions about welfare abuses that were pervasive in the 1980s and 90s. So, you know, the idea of the woman in the Lincoln who was buying T-bone steaks, uh, you know, for the children, uh, you know, who she was collecting from multiple fathers. Like, we just have to acknowledge uh, that those ideas were wrongheaded, racially motivated, inflammatory, and sexist, and then sort of think about welfare in a different way. Absolutely. I mean, because when you think about it, if someone has is, is receiving SNAP benefits, uh, they are supplementing the food they get from other sources, probably work or something else, quite frankly. And again, I just can't underscore uh, the back-end issues we'll face. When you talk about health care, homelessness, I mean, those issues will have an exponential cost on government uh, if we cut out programs like this today. Okay, well, it's going to be, we'll watch how this uh, develops in the state of Georgia. Uh, Greg, let's move on to another issue. Uh, we, at, late last week, talked about the fact that uh, Georgia Supreme Court Justice Robert Benham ha- had initially announced he was going to retire at the end of his term, which would have been next fall. He pushed that up. He's now going to get out at the first of the year. And on the show last, I think, Friday, we speculated about why he'd pushed his decision up. Nobody was sure. Mary Margaret Oliver suggested that he'd had a meeting with Governor Kemp to discuss this. It turned out that didn't ha- there wasn't a meeting between the two of them. But you did some pretty good reporting on this. And it's his reason for getting out earlier is pretty interesting. Yeah. W- what we've been told is he's had no direct meeting with Governor Kemp. That doesn't mean, you know, some of his his advisors or, 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 or allies didn't have a meeting with Governor Kemp or, or Governor Kemp's allies. But essentially, he's, re- he's really cognizant that he's um, the only African-American, one of two African-American members on the bench, the first African-American member on, on the Supreme Court ever appointed um, and that it's a nine ju- nine justice bench now and he he's he's really hopeful that, that the governor appoints someone uh, of color uh, to the seat and the governor has had a even though he's a conservative Republican has had a track record of surprising a, a lot of his critics especially when it comes to judicial appointments in in picking historic precedent setting people to yeah, let's expand on that just a yeah. little bit uh, uh, Caesar it, if he were to step down if he were going to step down at the end of his term there will be an election for that so we already have candidates announced to run for that seat but uh, by stepping down to the beginning of 2020 
it allows Governor Kemp to make an appointment to that seat that won't be filled till 2022. Benham is putting the bet on Kemp continuing a minority presence, a bigger minority presence on the court by putting it in his hands uh, rather than uh, voters uh, dealing mostly with white candidates. For well, I mean, job. I think I think that's a possibility, quite frankly. When you get into an election scenario, you never know what's going to happen. You never know who you're going to end up getting. Uh, it could just be a function of who has uh, the highest name recognition or who has... Um, or whose you, name comes first. Whose name comes first, who has the most money, or what have you. And it may have zero to do with their ability to be a good justice. I guess my gut tells me, I mean, and I've, I've, I've known or watched Justice Benham since I was a law student, obviously. Mm. I mean, he was required reading. Uh, and, and in my you know years as a lawyer, I've gotten to know him and had a lot of conversations with him. And he's always a couple of things worth noting. And I had to think about this for this for this show is number one, he's he's never come across as partisan in our conversations, number one. Yep. Number two, he is very, he's a big stickler for people doing the right thing, number two. Uh, and then number three, he loves the Supreme Court. He loves uh, and protects the judiciary. I've always just, everything, I always hear that in everything he's ever said to me when I've heard him speak or what have you. So my guess is that he believes that making this decision now is going to be in the best interest of the Georgia Supreme Court and the state judiciary. That that is my gut. Now, what that means, you know, uh, beyond that, I'm not sure, but I think that's part of it. Yeah, you know, Andre, it's interesting to hear Caesar say that because I've watched Robert Benham. I'm old enough to have watched him. Like Caesar is a law student. I was a reporter when he uh, got that first. <clears throat> he won his first election uh, to the bench, and uh, his career since then has always been one. Of, he's one of those public servants whose uh, whose who's, uh, questions of integrity have never come up. Respectability. He's been a he's been a remarkable member of the judiciary in the state. So I don't study courts and I especially don't study state courts, um, but it's interesting to hear how you describe him and to think about this in the context of appointed judiciaries versus elected judiciaries. Um, and then just thinking about the logic of it, I mean, you know, the appointment sort of opens this up to a sort of more politicized process. And, you know, I would have to ask, and I think it's an empirical question that maybe when I get back to Emory, some of my colleagues will school me on, um, you know, which one are you uh, more likely yeah. to get a partisan judge out of? And so I have big questions about this. Well, Robert Benham, uh, those are awful big shoes to fill. I mean, he's, he's, he's quite a guy. And I, I do think that there's quite a lot to suggest that Brian Kemp will continue to make the kind of appointments he has been making, which, which are diverse, which are not necessarily what you would expect from a, a conservative Republican governor. You could even use Kelly Loeffler as, as an example of that trend. Um, and so I think uh, he's calculating that that's probably going to happen and probably will. All right. Um, we'll watch to see what happens in terms of the appointment that, uh, that the governor makes for that seat. Um, Kerwin, let me start with you on this. So this week, the Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court, had the opportunity to decide whether it wanted to take up a Kentucky law which requires that before a woman in the state can have an abortion, she has to have a sonogram, and that sonogram must be described to her in detail by the doctor. Um, There were two federal courts that have already upheld that law, but at the same time, there was a North Carolina law that was quite similar where that federal judge in that case struck it down. So there was dissension on this issue, and the court could have taken it up. Do we do we have any reason to read into this what people are out there so interested in watching unfold? And that's is the court now an anti-abortion court? You know, I, I really don't think so. I mean, the, the individuals on this court, and I'm not an expert on the courts either, uh, but the individuals on this court uh, don't always vote party line. I mean, it's been interesting to see, you know, some of the Republican members, too. Um, uh, it, that's such a personal issue, and it can vary by state so dramatically uh, who's involved, what the state guidelines are. Um, we may get to that point where it's an anti-abortion court, but I'm, I'm not certain we're there yet. I should make clear what I'm saying, Greg, and I, I, maybe it's understood that by deciding not to take this up, the Kentucky law stays in effect. Women will have to first have a, a sonogram and have it described to them. Andre, you wanted to jump in. Yeah, I mean, I don't see that this actually has any bearing on the heartbeat bills that are around the country. I mean, so, you know, the possibility that this could have been taken up. So, I mean, I just said I'm not a judicial scholar. I'm about to act like I'm one. 
Uh, you know, judicial controversy is one of the things that the Supreme Court does actually intervene on. And so when you do have different um, circuits making different rulings, right, you would have to sort of make that. On the other hand, there are laws that require waiting periods. Um, you know, this isn't terribly unusual. And this isn't actually impinging, probably from the mind of the court, the right of a woman to be able to get an abortion. It's just making her have to go through a bureaucratic step before she would be able to get one of those. And so for that reason, I see that as being wholly different than whether or not you can, uh, you know, end all abortions, you know, sort of after a fetal heartbeat is detected. I, I can't help but think, though, we're all reading tea leaves on all of the, and anything that has to do with abortion with the Georgia a, a law that all but outlaws it, you know. So um, it, it just strikes me as something we are watching. A we little are. Bit. And one of the tea leaves we can read, too, is how this affects next year's legislative session, because we know Democrats will come out with a repeal bill trying to repeal the, the anti-abortion bill that, pa- that passed earlier this year. And it will probably go nowhere because the Republicans control the legislature. But we're not quite sure what the governor and what legislative leaders will get behind, if anything, to go a step further beyond last year's uh, this this past year's bill, and could they, uh, you know, adopt the legislation like the one that's that's pending right now? Could they go another route? Because look, you know, I always remember this, but the beginning of this year's session, there was some talk about the heartbeat bill, but most of the talk was around a trigger bill, which yeah. was much weaker and much and and, and, and was it was still controversial, but not nearly as controversial. It was, was what Governor Kemp. Uh, was proposing wanted. as in a way to as a way we presume to avoid this kind of hardcore law that's now been passed, and that called for abortion to be outlawed in Georgia if Roe v. Wade right. was mm-hmm. was was struck down, um, which you know advocates wanted, but was, we're not all uh, fiery about as as much as the anti-abortion bill. That Caesar, you want to jump in? Yeah, well, yeah, a couple of things. Number one, I, I think that the. The, I haven't read the ruling, but I would be concerned about the ruling in terms of what it's saying about the Supreme Court. Uh, it, it makes me think. Well, they with, they re- rejected it without comment, which makes it even more interesting. Exactly. I think. Exactly. Yeah. Which yeah, they don't even want to hear it. Right. And it, mm-hmm. if if it, I, I think they should have taken a look at this case uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, and, and I'm not a constitutional scholar or lawyer by any stretch. But there's some there. It feels like to me that having that requirement in Kentucky uh, bumps up against some constitutional issues for a woman. Uh, one is the right to privacy is one of them. What if a woman doesn't want a sonogram, but she wants an abortion? Do I have to have a sonogram to have an abortion? The answer to that really kind of skirts around, if not directly sits on the issue of right to privacy, number one. Number two, uh I kind of liken that to the, the the requirement to have to have a sonogram. I liken that to someone sitting you in a room and showing you uh, magazines on on abortion or just some sort of religious proselytizing. Quite frankly, and so something about that also smacks to me as as is improper. So I'm surprised the Supreme Court refused to hear it, and I think it sends a bad signal. All right. It doesn't mean, though, that the heartbeat bill in Georgia is safe by any means. Right. Uh, yeah. I think they're just very, very different merits. I, it, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's quite correct. It's going to be fascinating to watch that make its way through the courts throughout 2020, oh, which just happens to be a very important election year. Let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way and come back with more on today's Political Rewind. There are many ways to be a leader. Some run big companies. Some serve on the school board or volunteer for causes they care about. Most leaders are regular people who want to make a difference. They do it by supporting what matters to them. I'm Tamara Keith. When you give to public radio, you're supporting reliable journalism. So please follow your heart and be a leader. Make a year-end gift now. Call 800-222-4788 or donate online at gpb.org. On the next Fresh Air, my guest will be Conan O'Brien, who's been making changes. He changed the format of his late-night show and entered the podcast world with a popular interview show. We'll talk about trying new things, being driven by anxiety, and I'll persuade him to sing a song that influenced him when he was learning to play guitar. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 here on GPB. You can also listen live online at gpbnews.org or download our GPB app at your favorite app store. 
We're back for Political Rewind. Dr. Andra Gillespie, Dr. Kerwin Swint, Cesar Mitchell, and Greg Bluestein at the, uh, in the studio for today's show. I, I want to go to a, 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 a bundle of stories, really a trio of stories, Greg Bluestein, that all sort of relate to, uh, to the culture of the Old South. And they all happen to pop to the surface uh, in the last uh, basically week. The, the most visible one, I think, was Nikki Haley went on Glenn Beck's podcast and talked about the Confederate flag. Um, and she, we're going to play a little portion of it, but just to set it up, she essentially said that Dylan Roof, who was the assassin who went into uh, Mother Emanuel Baptist Church in Charleston and began shooting up the congregation, horrible crime that he somehow tainted the image of the Confederate flag. Let's listen to what she told Beck. I mean, South Carolina fell to her knees when this happened. This is one of the oldest African-American churches. These 12 people were amazing people. They loved their church. They loved their family. They loved their community. And here is this guy that comes out with his manifesto holding the Confederate flag and had just hijacked everything that people thought of. We don't have hateful people in South Carolina. There's always the small minority that's always going to be there. But, you know, people saw it as service and sacrifice and heritage. And but once he did that, there there was no way to overcome it. So, Greg, I turn to you first on this because there's most people believe Nikki Headley is going to be a candidate for president, uh, possibly in 2024. This is a kind of statement that doesn't go away easily. No, it doesn't. And look, she's on a book tour right now, and she was just in Atlanta a couple of weeks ago. And she actually she was speaking to the uh, Marcus Jewish Community Center of Atlanta's uh, huge audience of hundreds, and she brought she brought up the flag. And, she, and the way she brought it up was stand against Republican good old boys who wanted the flag to continue to fly at the state house in South Carolina and Columbia and how she took a stand against them. So it's really interesting to see how with a different audience, she's um, kind of changing her rhetoric. I, that is fascinating, Andrew, because we remember that after the, the, the terrible crime, she was, uh, she, was one, she was the first one to call for removing the Confederate flag from the state capitol, something that South Carolinians had fought against for decades, and yet there's this side of her. So I have so many thoughts about this. The first thing, (laughs) Dylan Roof hijacked nothing, and that is the point, right, is that he gloms on to this uh, particular ideology, this hate that, you know, is spread on the Internet, but that is steeped in Southern history that was taught from generation to generation, and he wasn't respectable about how he went about putting it into practice. So he did something that was horrible, but the ideology sort of is inherently violent, and she's refusing to acknowledge that. So that's the first thing. Um, I actually went to Reverend Pinckney's funeral. So I was there and I remembered when she got up. And if I recall it correctly, I remembered her talking about how the Charleston community sort of came and embraced that community. And it was actually a very, very beautiful thing to uh, to see. But you also had dissenters who were like, I need more than thoughts and prayers about that. And so one of the things that she did, she didn't do it to the same extreme that I remember Tucker Carlson doing it on Fox News. But it was this, oh, look at how great we are. We came and we embraced our community. It's like, okay, we got to deal with this hate problem that's there. And I don't think she did that, but she wasn't as egregious as other people were in actually talking about this. So I'm actually going to betray Um, In the wake of the 2016 election, when I thought Donald Trump was going to lose, I had intended to write an op-ed and I was going to start off with the scene of Nikki Haley, Tim Scott and Marco Rubio after the South Carolina primary and viewing them as the new face of the Republican Party, one that was going to be more diverse, one that was going to be more racially moderate about things. So every time that Nikki Haley opens her mouth and talks out of five sides of it, I now don't regret that I didn't have the opportunity to talk about that. And so she's pivoting depending on her audience to try to play all sides. And she's been pretty good at being able to do this. But one of the things that I would tell her and any other moderate Republican who doesn't want or, you know, moderate seeming Republican relative to Trump, who's trying to figure out how to like thread that needle, sooner or later, you're going to have to take a stand on stuff and you don't appease silliness. You don't appease stupidity. You don't appease hatred and expect that you're going to come out of this ethically smelling like a rose. That's problematic to me. I apologize. Kerwin, I couldn't help but uh, think about the fact 
fact that today is the same. We, we were talking about this on the day that I think it's Alpharetta has decided to end its uh, traditional Old Soldiers' Day parade. Mm-hmm. And they're ending it because they would not allow uh, people to march in the parade with a Confederate flag. Right. They were sued by the Sons of Confederate Veterans. And rather than uh, deal with that lawsuit that will cost them money, they just decided they won't do the parade anymore. You're probably going to see more and more of that. Um, as regards to Nikki Haley, uh, you know, she's doing what politicians do. Uh, she tried to thread the needle. She made a mistake. She needs to go back through her notes, be more careful next time. We all know what she was trying to say, I think. And we know based on her background, the, the position she's had on this issue in the past. Uh, but this is what happens when politicians try to talk about the Confederate flag. It's very, very treacherous. You need to be extremely careful. She needs to be more careful. Yeah, uh, Caesar, I don't know. I think maybe she got an injection of truth serum rather than was not quite, didn't quite frame things the way she wanted to. But, you know, I understand what Kerwin's point is. I've met Nikki Haley, and she's very charismatic, likable. I have no idea what she was trying to say. Uh, and so, I mean, because if she truly believes that, she's out of touch, number one. Uh, if she doesn't believe that, it goes back to what both of you alluded to, but certainly what you said earlier, and that is, you know, you, you got to be authentic. You got to speak the truth. I think people uh, now, you know, if the electorate, if you're concerned about running for office, people want to see you be authentic and speak the truth, whatever that is. Uh, but I think when you just kind of try to thread the needle and speak out of five or six different sides uh, of your of your of your mouth, I think you just you step into mess like this. Excuse me, like this. My prediction is that she's going to run for U.S. Senate in South Carolina because ah. that comment was for South Carolinians. That was not for even the greater South, and that was certainly not for the United States. And so, I mean, I just don't see how that helps her politically outside of South Carolina. Uh, by the way, Greg Bluestein, uh, all of this, what, what Kerwin said especially, reminds me, I just looked it up to be sure I had the right year. It was in the year, two, it was McCain's 2000 presidential run. John McCain ran in that campaign against, of course, George W. Bush. And when they came to the South Carolina primary, McCain refused to condemn or to call for the Confederate flag to be taken down from the the uh, South Carolina uh, State House, and that has haunted him uh, into the 2008 campaign when he ran again. So to that extent, Kerman's right. Politicians continue to have an impossible time figuring out. It's, why not just condemn it? Period. I mean, it's a very it's a very odd kind of. Uh, uh, troubling issue, I think. But I mean, it's in part because it's too much like right, but it's also because of a fear of, uh, and, and it's not an unjustified fear of attitudes within uh, the electorate. Um, and I think that this is a time for moral leadership. So yeah, okay, if, if you've got bigots in your electorate, this is your time to educate them and to say, I don't care if I lose votes for this. This is in fact the right thing to do. All right, Kerwin, before we move on, let me give you one last uh, chance to mention something or talk about this. Well, I mean, like like I said, it's difficult to talk about. And I, I think she was doing what John McCain thought he was doing back in 2000, and that is try to win votes. But, yeah. uh, you yeah. know, I, I think we're, we're getting to a point where we do have to be more definitive in saying that it was wrong, it was evil, uh, period. Okay, let's uh, talk about another issue that relates to the Old South, the Confederacy, Greg Bluestein. Senator Donzella James is introducing a resolution in the uh, Senate uh, that will call on, I believe the language is, to that the state of Georgia acknowledge with provo- profound regret that Georgia was a slave state. Yeah, and this is the latest in a long line of, of, of pieces of legislation uh, pushing for some sort of apology for past abuse, for past uh, offenses. I, I wrote a story in 2015 that started with this line, it can be awfully hard for Georgia politicians to, to say I'm sorry, because over the years you've had mm-hmm. Vincent Fort, Tyrone Brooks, you've had a series of Democratic lawmakers um, on behalf of Native Americans push the legislature to not even ask for financial compensation, but just say I'm sorry for for uh, slavery, I'm sorry for past offenses, whatever they might be, and yet they go nowhere in the Georgia legislature because there is worry that it could be seen as legally liable. There's worry that any sort of saying I'm sorry is is a blemish on on Georgia's history. You name it. Uh, these these pieces of legislation uh, don't even really you ever get to hearings um, in the, under the gold dome. Um, Caesar. 
Um, well, I well. There are two. I, I, guess, I, I yeah. guess what I let me ask the yeah. question. There, are, you could say that it's commendable for a Donzella James to to ask for this resolution. At the same time, she does not call for reparations, and there are people who are going to argue that that's what's really needed here. Well, first of all, I think it's it's unfortunate and sad that the state legislature has not passed some yeah. sort of measure acknowledging the horror of slavery and its legacy. Uh, not only in 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 the lives of African Americans in in the state in this country, but in all Americans, white, black, whatever. Uh, number one, so I think that's a problem. So I applaud her for bringing the issue up again. I think she's got to. I won't say tread lightly. She's probably got to tread very aggressively with this, and maybe use this as an opportunity uh, to talk. Um, even more definitively about, well, what does this mean? We're going to acknowledge it, but now what's the action item and what's the investment? And the reason I say that is that I think she could face potentially some criticism, some real criticism from the the left on, well, great, you've said something great. These are great platitudes, but what's the action item to address the issues in the legacy? Andra? Well, I mean, I think there's a difference there between symbolic and substantive politics, and she's clearly going for a symbolic measure, and I think she's going for the symbolic measure because of this history of this not passing. And so I think the operative word here, her quote in the AJC, is we need at least an apology uh, for, for Jim Crow. And so I think it's a, I think she means for it to be a starting point. And I think probably, you know, people who want more and rightfully want more, I would say, might not be as important Informed about sort of the legislative history of these types mm-hmm. of measures. And so she's like, look, this is and I think so, as long as she makes clear that this is step one and this isn't where you would want to end with that, but that this is a starting point, because even this admission has been kind of like the, the hardest thing to do. So it's kind of like, you know, the first part in having a problem is admitting that you have it in exactly. terms of being able to solve it. So if she stops there, it's a problem. But I think if she makes clear that, you know, this there are further steps, then, you know, she might exactly. be able to solve it. And, and this that. is where and this is where and, and, and you're right. And, and, and that's why I really applaud uh, uh, Donzella for doing this. And I think it really calls for other legislators to step up and be supportive of this in a much broader, stronger, deeper discussion. Um, real quick, Kerwin, because yeah. we're out of time. Uh, is this become even more charged because it is an election year 2020? Uh, Republicans trying to broaden their base. They're trying to do it with Kelly uh, Leffler, but they're not doing a very good job with African-American outreach. Right. Will right. they be able to turn their backs on this in an election year? Well, I hope not. I mean, you're right. It's an election year and profound regret is something that every Everybody should be able to get behind. There, there, there should be no reason you can't accept that. Okay, very. I said there was a trio of uh, news stories. The, the last one, we don't have time to really discuss it. John Lewis presided over the United States House uh, when it passed a measure that would restore some of the pre-clearance uh, aspects of election laws passed in states like Georgia, which, of course, was stripped out of civil rights uh, statutes uh, uh, by the legisl- by the by Congress a couple of years back. But Andra. The fact of the matter is, this is going nowhere in the Senate, is it? Yeah. So one question is the Supreme Court. So this is the part I'm they're sorry, trying to reinstate what Supreme got pulled out. I'm sorry. Of course, it was the court's decision, not a legislative action. By Shelby County. Yeah. I mean, and yeah. all the Supreme Court was saying was Congress go back and, and, and right. rewrite those sections of the Voting Rights Act. Problem is, is that this is dead on arrival in the Senate. Yeah. So never going party anywhere. Control. All right. We are completely out of time. Only enough time to thank Kerwin Swint, Andre Gillespie, Caesar Mitchell, and Greg Bluestein for a terrific conversation. Uh, we'll see all of you. We're off the air tomorrow. One of the final Thursdays. We're not on the air starting January 6th. We're five days a week. But until then, I'll be back on Friday with another Political Rewind. Take care, everybody.